0: Well, today we thought we would focus on the subject of media, another one of the topics that Joe picked, and um, obviously controversial. Uh, that's the only ones we seem to be doing this weekend, uh, and uh, so we'll focus on that. But really, I want to give you kind of an overview of what we're going to cover. Again, you have some of the material, the notes, and all of the rest. And, you know, when I used to speak on the subject of media, or even when Probe Ministries published a book, which uh, all the articles you can still find on the Probe website, uh, things like uh, the Christian in television, the Christian in movies, the Christian and the arts, Christian music, all those. Uh, and matter of fact, I found out that book is even being used as a textbook at a university because they complained that they had run out of copies and wanted some more. Um, But in the old days, a lot of what we would focus on would be things like television, because after all, more homes have televisions than have indoor plumbing. There's a joke there, but I'm going to skip it. But nevertheless, you know. Uh, and then over time, we began to have the issue of what about the home computer? And so we got talking about that. Well, now we're into the whole digital world, aren't we? So this has changed things dramatically. So what I'm going to try to do is go through this fairly quickly, and I'll spend a little bit of time talking about media and then some time talking about digital devices because those are the kind of the new phenomenon. And if you find yourself saying, well, This is kind of reaffirming what I already sort of believed. Uh, One of the things I say on my radio program oftentimes is when we have this new study done by the federal government, we oftentimes uh, in the federal government or even in some social science research spends millions of dollars to basically come to a conclusion that every mother already knows in the first place. So, okay, you're going to already have a pretty good sense of all of this. So I'm going to try to cover a few things that aren't maybe as obvious, Because when I'm talking about this, certainly a lot of you are going to think about media addiction. We'll talk about that a little bit. You're going to talk about the danger of texting and driving. Well, I'm already assuming you know some of those kinds of things, so I'm going to cover some things maybe you haven't thought about and add to your growing list of why you really want to exercise discernment in your own life and teach that to your children and grandchildren. Is everybody with me on that? One of the issues that the digital devices in the digital world has created is a problem of what we call overchoice. Now we sometimes talk about first world problems, you know, these aren't third world problems, this is the first world problems, but you know, just before we even get into media, think about this, we have 125 different kinds of yogurt, uh, we have uh, 551 different kinds of coffee. As a matter of fact, if you uh, actually have a television and a satellite dish, over 1500 different movies you could select every single month. Um, since I'm in Starbucks country here, okay, 19,000 different ways to order a cup of Starbucks coffee. When you look at all the variations and all the things that are possible, and if you've ever been in a line, for example, where somebody's saying, uh, "What are those late days? You go, oh, "This is going to be a really <laughs> long morning up there," you know. And so, and if you look at all the cars, 25 million versions of cars. And so you can see that we're sort of almost incapacitated by overchoice. And you know what? The digital world has created that as well. Let me just give you a few quick facts and figures. YouTube users upload 72 hours of new video every minute. Email users upload 200... 204 million messages every minute. Google receives over 2 million search inquiries uh, every minute. Facebook users share 640,000 pieces of content every minute. Twitter users use over 100 and send over 100,000 tweets every minute. You can go on and see the number of uploads, uh, uh, app downloads from Apple and uh, organizations and Facebook and Instagram and websites are created and WordPress users. And this, I think, is very significant. Because we're going to point out a little bit later when we talk about some of the youth, and especially I did a whole section here primarily for Stephen, because if you're going to do youth ministry, there's going to be a lot that really is there. That's one of the issues. For us old folks, choice begins to be incapacitating. Ever go down the cereal aisle, just go hmm, wow, look at all the cereal, or you go into a high tech store and you look at all the different uh, DVDs and all. Of, it's 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 sort of incapacitating for us that are older, but if you're younger, you've grown up kind of liking choice, and so we're going to talk about that as well. But let's see if we can get some um, perspective here for just a minute. One of the people I've quoted this weekend, and I quote often because we interview him, is a man by the name of George Barna. And a number of years ago, George Barna actually wanted to try to understand what are the sources of influence in our society. Uh, For those of you that are in the social science area, they're called SSI, Sources of Significant Influence. And using some sophisticated technology, he published this in Christianity Today and other places as well, and concluded that the sources of significant influence in our society are movies, television, the internet, books, music, then also public policy and family. Now if you look at that, the first five of those have something in common. They're all what? Media. That's interesting. Now, when he published this, interestingly enough, it was one of the most controversial and talked about type articles that appeared in Christianity Day. There were all sorts of letters to the editor, in part because he also concluded that the church is not even in the top 12 sources of influence. Now, think about this for just a minute. Let's imagine we could just go back in time. Let's imagine we go back 100 years in time. We'll go back to Seattle 100 years ago. I guess we could do it. Back to the future style. We'll park a DeLorean out here, and we'll get Doc to punch you in the chronometer to you, and you fly back and all of a sudden we're now back a hundred years ago. And just think about that. Then we do a survey then. What do you think would be the sources of significant influence in Seattle a hundred years ago? Church and family, don't you think? now families much further and church is not even in the top 12 sources of influence. In large part media has become the socializing factor for this next generation and so this is very significant in terms of the possible impact. One of the things I want you to do is realize that the amount of media usage is increasing every single year and I won't overwhelm you with statistics so I took a lot of numbers and just created this graph And this comes from the Kaiser Kaiser Family Foundation. About every five years, they actually survey youth. And these are age 8 to 18. And a lot of this material is on our website in case you wanted more of it. But what you see is, as I created this kind of chart using all the numbers, is that look at 1999, for example. This is blue, would be television, then video games, music, all the way down. You can see the amount of television viewing has increased every five years. Music, you can see that has increased rather dramatically, and I think that's due in large part to the implementation of the iPod and the iPhone and things of that nature. Now you can carry your music with you. Uh, You can see that computer uses has increased dramatically as well, and video game usage is very significantly increased. There was a study done by Lifeway, which is our Southern Baptist research arm, that concluded that if there is one thing that is identifying, most identifying of the millennial generation, it is, of all things, video games. And all of them seem to be increasing. Is any decreasing? Well, yes, reading actually is decreasing. <laughs> and then you have, of course, uh, movies as well. And so you can see that if you take the, the latest one, they've just done some, but I don't have those numbers because they're just kind of coming through. But if you go back to 2009, which of course is a while ago, you can see that uh, the typical, the average American youth, age 8 to 18, consumes 10 hours of media in 8 hours. You say, wait a minute, how do you get 10 hours of media in 8 hours? It's called multitasking. Have you ever seen this before? You know, the television is on, they're supposedly on their computer doing homework, but they're also on Facebook and maybe even listening to music all the same time. Have you been there? Okay. And so you can begin to see that this is an illustration of exactly one of the concerns. That is, you could make a very compelling case that the average American young person spends entirely too much time in front of a screen. And again, there's some obvious implications. So we have some doctors here, and they will tell, tell us, for example, that uh, all that time in front of a screen, you're not outside playing, and so problems of obesity and lack of exercise. So again, you know all of that. But it's a really dramatic series of circumstances that have played it out. Now, if you play this out over time, you recognize that the um, typical American home has a television set on more than seven hours a day probably not yours. I mean, there are some people in here who don't even have a television set, right? So how do they get those numbers? You ever been out on church visitation, going to a home and the TV's always on? It's kind of like this electronic fireplace, always kind of glowing in the corner, right? You know what? I'm with me on that. But again, just put this in perspective. By the time a typical high school student graduates in America, he or she will have seen 22,000 hours just of television alone. They'll only have spent 11,000 hours in a classroom. And that's just TV. You add into that computers and video games and all the rest, and you can begin to see that there is really a need for some kind of discernment. So how do we think about this biblically? You know, I have looked in my Bible, and it doesn't have words like DVD in it, iPod, no, nothing like that. But you know what? I think we still have some biblical principles we can apply. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, for example. You might want to turn there. If not, you can just look on the screen here. You can see that as Paul is writing to Timothy, in that first century culture, what does he say? Flee from what? Youthful lusts. Then he goes on to say, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, there were a lot of visually uh, questionable things that you would see if you lived in Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica or uh, uh, maybe even in Athens, or wherever you might find yourself. And so he's certainly addressing that. But you know, the amount of visual pornography, if you will, in the ancient world doesn't even come close to the kind that you would see today. You know, sometimes you walk in and the kid's got the TV set on and you go, poof, oh my goodness, let's turn that off. That will turn anybody into a pillar of salt, you know. You just didn't even expect that to come down. And all the kinds of temptations that exist, not to mention the fact that as soon as they get out there on the information superhighway, a lot of great information out there, but some pretty dark back alleys too. So again, a reminder that we should flee from youthful lusts. Here's another one we talked in the past about, Colossians 2.8, this is Colossians 3.8, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, rage and anger and malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Now, would that mean that you could never read anything that has anger in it? Well, no, the Bible has anger in it. The point is, is you would pay attention. I think a wise and discerning Christian would look at the outcome, You know, when I was at Yale University, one of the things we did was program computers. I did a lot of computer simulations. We had an old phrase that you've heard it before, garbage in, garbage out, guy go, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And if you begin to see certain things manifesting in your life or in the life of your children or grandchildren, you might say, maybe I need to go back to the source and evaluate what I am seeing, what comes in my eye gate and what comes in my ear gate. Might want to focus on those things which are positive, what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, we should think about such things. The emphasis I have here is just the real need for us, I think, to develop biblical discernment. If we needed that in the first century, we especially need it today in the 21st century, and making wise choices about how much time we allow these devices to actually affect our lives. Now, if you think that I'm down on media, you have misheard me. If you think at the end, Joe and I are going to collect all of our cell phones out here, and we're going to burn them in the campfire. No, that's not what we're doing, okay? Uh, I certainly recognize how important media can be. But it also needs to be used wisely, and I think we're going to have to train a generation that in the midst of this is going to have to have more discernment than ever. You know, in my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, I have a chapter on media, and I give you just kind of a summary of some of the things that media in general do. And the first is to recognize that the media oftentimes presents an unreal view of the world. If we want to think biblically, sometimes it's important for us to not necessarily have the media affect us in a negative way. Here's a newsflash. Reality TV is not reality. (laughs) More than that, think about this. The media oftentimes presents an oversimplified view of the world. You know, predictable plots, one-dimensional characters. Life is a little bit more complex than that. And perhaps the greatest concern is that the media sometimes desensitizes its viewers. What was shocking in yesterday is sort of ho-hum today. And you start seeing young people actually because of just this cure this incredible exposure to media. Let's go back to television for a minute. 22,000 hours of media just in terms of television. The average person in America. Now again, the fact that you're here means that your children and you are not average. The fact that you just haven't been watching television all weekend is uh, certainly the case. But just think about this. 22,000 hours of television. During that time, they will have seen 640,000 television commercials. Um, some of those are kind of fun and interesting, but you know, a lot of them emphasize all sorts of other things. They've all seen 200,000 acts of visual violence. We're actually subjecting a generation to a level of visual violence that maybe only children saw in a war zone. And just to think about that. Now, I recognize there's a difference between seeing real violence and seeing violence on television, but you know what I'm getting at, this whole issue of Desensitization. Well, let's talk about television for a minute. Most of you have televisions. Even if you don't, your kids probably go to homes where they have televisions. So what about that? Well, there's a fair amount of evidence to show that what you see on television and in other forms of media affects your perception of the world. Just in the interest of time, I'm just going to pick one of the studies out of my book, and it's a very famous one that not only is in technical journals, but it also appeared in a very popular magazine called Psychology Today was a work done by George Gerbner and Larry Gross at the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania, and it's known as the scary world of the TV heavy viewer. And what they found is, is that when they compared those people that watched lots of television, heavy TV viewers, to the general population, what they found is, is that heavy TV viewers tended to overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime. Why? Because they saw a lot of violence on television, and they actually lived in a much scarier world. Every year we have an outreach at the University of Texas at Dallas, and some of our staff work there, and lots of times we'll get a number of students that will come over like from China and all sorts of other places, but I'll use the China example, because I've actually had Chinese students say to me, I don't hear any gunfire. You know, if all you've ever seen about America are the action movies, you expect that there's probably a gunfire in every street corner, right? (laughs) The first time it came out, I go, what? (laughs) And then I found out what it was. I mean, if that's all you knew about America, you might perceive the world to be very different. Well, number two, they found that heavy TV viewers tended to overestimate the number of people involved in white-collar occupations. Why? Well, because most of the people, most of the characters are doctors and lawyers and businessmen, things like that, in white-collar occupations. Also, they found that uh, heavy TV viewers tended to overestimate the percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. Now, my point is, is it's not absolutely essential that you walk out of this room knowing the exact percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. But what I am saying is this. If we look at things that we can quantify... For example, your likelihood of being involved in a violent crime, your like uh the percentage of people in white-collar occupations, the percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world, if we can show you that those are skewed, when we can quantify those, would it not make sense that other things which are more difficult to quantify, sexuality, materialism, narcissism, would also be skewed? Does that make sense to you? And I think it illustrates only so well that what you see, what you hear, affects your worldview. Now, does it affect your behavior? Well, let's look again at the subject of television. I'm just going to pick one illustration of that. And that is studies that have been done by the American Psychiatric Association. And in, um, well, actually, American Association of Pediatrics. I'll use that one instead. And that is a study that was done a number of years ago that looked at adolescents, teenagers, and found that those who watched a lot more sex on television tended to be more sexually involved. Now, I recognize a correlation is not always a causation, but it would certainly make some sense that if you see a lot of people sexually involved, it would lower your inhibitions and you might be more sexually involved. Matter of fact, a follow-up study even found that girls that saw more sex on television had a higher incidence of teen pregnancy than the rest of the population. So it affects perhaps not only your worldview, but your behavior. What about violence? Well, over a thousand different studies pointing to what they called a causal connection between media and aggressive behavior in some children. Seeing lots of violence, sometimes they would act out. Now they have some of the weasel words there that everybody sees violence as going to be an axe murder or things like that, but they are simply saying that if you look at the evidence, and these are just a few studies, and I'm not loading the gun because you can find many more, that actually demonstrate what you would imagine. What you see, what you read, what you hear affects the way you perceive the world and ultimately affects your behavior. And so it's important to kind of have some discernment about the kinds of messages we have. I could give a whole talk just on how we evaluate the world view of the things that are in the media, but in the interest of time, let me just cover a couple of examples. And that is, first of all, when you turn on your television set or you go to the movies or you go to websites or even listen to music, lots of times you're getting a heavy dose of naturalism and atheism you got Richard Dawkins in the upper left-hand corner there, the God delusion. Lower left-hand corner, Christopher Hitchens, no longer alive, but wrote, you know, God is not good. Peter Singer up there at Princeton and Bill Maher. Uh, You have individuals that are really promoting an atheistic, naturalistic worldview. Does that mean we should never read anything by these individuals or watch anything by them? No, but we should have discernment. I've had a chance, I wouldn't recommend it for your quiet time, to read some of these individuals and interact with them, but nevertheless, it uh, is something we're going to have to train our children and grandchildren to have kind of a worldview detector out there, what we call a baloney detector. You know, sometimes a fair amount of baloney coming through the the screen there, and it's important for us to think about those. What about this? Who's that character up there in the upper left-hand corner there? Yoda, you know, and again, you, know, you can enjoy the Star Wars movies, whether or not, but the point is is that, again, you're getting a pretty heavy dose, as was intended, of Zen Buddhism. you got Deepak Chopra, you got Shirley MacLaine, the Dalai Lama, again, a pantheistic New Age Eastern worldview that comes as well. Uh, then you have uh, some that kind of delve a little bit into the occult or into Gnosticism, the Da Vinci Code, the Matrix, the Harry Potter series. We could put the Twilight series in those as well. And then, of course, even the concern about sensuality. I had to really be careful about the pictures I picked of these women just to illustrate uh, the point because I didn't want to uh, have any of those be it. As a matter of fact, some of those are pretty offensive anyway. But it just illustrates again uh, the kinds of world that is out there. And so am I saying, don't watch television? No. Are we going to take all of our TV sets out there and burn them? Well, but again, if you can't tame the TV, maybe you should trash the TV. What about computers and those kinds of things? So there's a lot more I could say. And really, that is about half of a lecture I normally give. But I thought we would get into this issue of digital devices. And this is new material. Uh, because some of that I covered a few years ago, and some of you might remember perfectly everything I said five years ago, and even if you don't, a lot of that's on the website. So I wanted to give you some of the newest things coming down, and a lot of this is the concern that is coming even from secular people, who we're not necessarily looking at from a biblical point of view, but nevertheless are saying... We've got to rethink how these digital devices are affecting us. And a lot of that has to do with brain studies. So again, I'm going to turn it into kind of a psychology biology class. Everybody okay with that for just a few minutes? And probably the way to introduce this is have some fun. Some of you might remember the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. There's a place where the computer how is actually killing people. And so it comes time for them to disconnect the computer And so Dave Bowman begins to disconnect the memory circuits. And that's when Hal says, Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. And I'm using that to illustrate what um, the author of this very significant book says. Because Nicholas Carr first wrote about this in Atlantic and then turned this into a book, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. This book is still quite easily available at Barnes & Noble and other places. And he said, you know, I could feel it too. He said, over the past few years, I had this uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neurocircuitry, reprogramming the memory. What he said is, you know, it used to be I'd read a book and I'd get engrossed in it and I'd look up and an hour had gone by. And now sometimes I can't keep my concentration by the second page. Maybe you've noticed the same thing when you do your Bible studies in your quiet time. It used to be, you know, I could really just get involved in God's Word, and I just found myself always, you know, distracted. Or maybe I'm using uh, Bibles on my computer, and I just was always tempted to see what was going on while I was doing my quiet time. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that some of these digital devices are beginning to kind of reprogram our attention span. Now, to get away from this for just a minute, let's talk about what we've learned about our brains This is fascinating. Uh, This is one particular study that points out something I alluded to uh, the other day, and it's certainly one that you can get into more detail. We had a violinist up here, and if you're looking at that part of that violinist's brain, or if you look at the brain, for example, of my um, sister-in-law who plays in the symphony, you will see that because of all that fingering, that part of her brain is expanded. And we talked about this the other day about homosexuality. Use it and it grows. Don't use it and it shrinks you know so these neurons and these synapses began to develop and so we're recognizing that there is a lot more of what we call neuroplasticity our brains are a lot more plastic than we might have imagined and that's a good thing if you're trying to learn something you know trying to hit a baseball trying to hit a tennis ball trying to shoot a basketball trying to learn a a particular instrument that is a very good thing because our brains are very adaptable but our brains also adapt to these devices we put in front of us Here's another example of that. This one comes from London, but interestingly enough, they found that that part of the hippocampus, which has to do with spatial data, that it was actually much more developed in taxi drivers who have been driving in London for longer periods of time than others, which means if you need to get a taxi in Seattle or you go to another part of the country, uh, you probably want to get one that's been around for a while. Or you might want to get a taxi driver over an Uber or something like that because you are actually, again, seeing the benefits of that. But at the same time, you're training certain parts of your brain, and sometimes other parts begin to atrophy. And this is why people have become very concerned about this, because we're talking about how the plastic brain is rewiring itself. Now, in some cases, if you've had a stroke or if you uh, had an accident, sometimes you can force other parts of your brain to take over those uh, areas of responsibility. But at the same time, recognizing that we're really training ourselves now to look at these digital devices and oftentimes to limit rather dramatically our concentration. A number of years ago, someone asked one of these authors of a book, "Why is it you have such short chapters?" And he said, well, because I am concluding that most people can read this chapter in seven minutes. Why seven minutes? Well, it so happens that the typical segment on television is a seven minutes long, and most people only have seven minutes of concentration time before their mind wanders. If that's the case, you have wandered now two or three times while I've been up here speaking, right? Well, that number is shrinking now because now we are expecting everything to be fast and furious. And as I have said to um, Joe more than once, can we communicate the gospel in 140 characters in Twitter tweets? Think about that. And so you can see how that's kind of changed our whole way of our brains. More than that, interestingly enough, uh, this study talks about how our brains are being weird wide in terms of things like addiction, distraction, depression, and overload. We'll come back to some of those, but let me just take the distraction one. We recognize now that one of the things that is dramatically dropped in America is the issue of creativity. Christians have been speaking about this for some time. Remember Howard Hendricks who used to teach a class on creativity. I'd always come in and teach there. Well, you can go to TED Talks. Anybody love TED Talks like I do, you know, these secular TED Talks, and they're saying the same thing. Creativity is declining in America dramatically, and that's because we no longer have any downtime, no any think time. A way to illustrate this is a number of years ago I had a Bible study and almost everybody in the Bible study was either in the arts or in advertising and some of these were really famous people. Remember the Mikey likes it commercial? Well, he was in there. Uh, the uh, Left Behind uh, movies, uh, the I am Second campaign, uh, I've found it campaign. These were kind of the. These were really some powerful people, and to a person, they said the most creative ideas, some of the best ideas they ever came up with, came up when they had downtime. It was like when they were taking a shower or for the men when they were shaving or the women when they're putting on makeup or when they were driving, when their mind was sort of in neutral and all of a sudden the ideas came together and they had their creativity. Well, in this busy, busy where, you know, you're 24-7, always uh, your phones are beeping and buzzing and all that kind of stuff, there's not a lot of what? Quiet time. You know, Psalm 46 talks about that, you know, the need for us to really have some time. Psalm 23, for that matter, you think about all sorts of passages in the scriptures that talk about the fact that we just need to learn how to be still and know that I am God. But in this fast-paced, frenetic, North um, American lifestyle, what do we have? We don't have a lot of think time. And then, of course, addiction is one of those that we certainly can talk about. And I remember when George Barna first wrote about this, you know, many years ago, media addiction, I said, oh, yeah, everything's an, uh, an addiction, and I, you know, Kind of poo pooed it until I looked at the article. He says, if you look at the signs of addiction uh, that are established by the American Psychiatric Association, uh, they really do show signs of addiction. One of my co authors and one of my staff members actually teaches a class in media and technology at the University of Texas at Dallas. And one of the things he requires of the students is to take a technology fast. And the way to do that is the students are to hand over their cell phone, and he keeps it in his desk drawer for 48 hours. You know where I'm going with this. More than half of the students will take a zero on that rather than give up their cell phone for two days. And those that do come back with visible signs of withdrawal when they walk into the classroom. Now one of you told me a story uh, that you were trying to get your son to just leave his phone in the tent so he could go and drive a boat and I thought that is even more significant because most of them, if you told them I just want to keep your phone for just a few hours is enough. And so that I think shows you some of the evidence that we have of addiction and one of the reasons why many of us And we're not just talking about the kids here. We're talking about the parents, too, and the grandparents. I really need to evaluate whether the technology is being used or whether the technology is owning us. I thought it was interesting in this article, he also pointed out that almost all the parents complain about the video games and the media and things like that, but he said three-fourths say exposure of their children to inappropriate content is one of their top concerns, yet who drives them to the video store? Who turns on the television set? Who allows them to have access? You think about that. So it really reminds us once again of the need for us to really think about um, the use of technology in our lives. Well, this section is for those in youth ministry, but also those of you who have kids, uh, because there is a really good book that came out this year, Kathy Cook, and it's called Screens and Teens, probably the best book I've found so far, which really, again, reminds us that screen time is rapidly uh, replacing family time. And again, this is a generation that's really kind of hardwired to uh, digital devices. And so she talks about these tempting lies from technology. And so if you're dealing with especially teenagers, and some of you have teenagers, some of you are teenagers, think through this for just a minute, because I think she's done a good job of helping us understand that some of the problems have been accentuated by technology. It's not that we didn't have those, it's just technology has made it easier. And the first kind of lie from technology is, I'm the center of the universe, you know, it's really easy to think you are the center of the universe, and many young people, of course, make decisions about that in mind. But if you think about it today, the world sort of revolves around me. In other words, it's like a wheel. I'm in the center, and you've got family, peers, ideas, goals, school, media, all that point to them. And the problem with this is, is that now we have even kind of parents enabling this. You know, you have helicopter parents. You ever heard that phrase? Snowplow parents kind of plowing the way. A good example of that, I saw this in USA Today the other day. They were talking about this millennial that came in for a job interview with his parents. Came into a job interview with his parents. I'm not making this stuff up. You know, that, uh, that is definitely helicopter parents, don't you think? But again, technology is good, but look how it sort of caters to that, you know. If I want a book, I can go on Amazon and get it right then. You know, search engine, I can investigate whatever I want. You know, I don't have to listen to a radio station. I can create my own radio station through Pandora, Spotify, or things like that. By the way, those I'm not speaking in tongues, those really are things out there for those of you who don't know. <laughs> uh, and so again, the idea is to replace the I'm the center of the universe with God is the center of the universe. A second uh, lie would be, you know, I deserve to be happy all the time. But we can't be happy all the time. Uh, But have we contributed, in some cases, to a teen's expectation of being happy all the time? Because we live in the culture of now. You know, shopping used to take time. You know, you go through a bookstore, or those of us remember, you go through a record store. Remember records? These are like CDs, kids that were bigger, you know, never mind, okay. (laughs) You don't even know what CDs are now, you know. (laughs) But now you just get what you want instantaneously. And one of the biggest issues is FOMO, the fear of missing out. A lot of studies now have shown that, you know, Facebook is not necessarily a happy time for a lot of people because I look and they're having a vacation and I'm working or they have to go to this movie and I never made it that movie. And, And so there's this kind of, you know, hey, what's going on? And the fear of missing out, which is very significant. But also we live in a culture of impatience. You know, we expect speed. You know, answers are supposed to be one click away. I walked in the other day, and uh, we have a millennial that works at Probe. We always have at least one. <laughs> no, we have more than that. But you know. <laughs> but you know, just to keep us honest, you know. But anyway, he's he's all agitated. So what's up? He said, oh, "Well, the microwave's taking too long." And I'm thinking, no microwave <laughs> taking too long? Oh no! What? What? <laughs> I hope I didn't hear that right." And then we, of course, live in the culture of easy. You know, we can access what we want. We can edit it. We can correct it. And we live in the culture of new. For those of you that have not seen this, the first day the movie Frozen was available, 3.2 million DVD Blu-rays were sold. Is that something? So again, recognize, you know, I deserve to be happy to instead I can find joy in my circumstances. Let's take a third one, choice. Just talked about that a minute ago. I must have choice. You know, and teens are surrounded by choice. Variety really is their spice of life. Choice keeps them happy. And I gave you some examples here for you more every minute. Instagram users post 216,000 new photos, YouTube users upload 72 hours of video. And sometimes, though, even they are overwhelmed by the choices and dissatisfied with the choices they make, and uh, oftentimes they're dealing with this issue of multitasking. I can't choose, so I'll just try to do it all at once. Have you seen this phenomenon? You know, this multitasking taking place, and sometimes even find making decisions difficult. So here, uh, I think you replace that with God can help me make wise choices. I'm my own authority. You know, this generation doesn't just disregard authority. They can oftentimes be their own authority. And you can see up here, they don't need to listen to everyone because after all, I'm making choices on the basis of universe and happiness and those kinds of things. And so sometimes even television and movies reinforce kind of an anti-authoritarian mindset. Now, gaming turns out to be something that actually rather dramatically increases your hand-eye coordination. Gamers also tend to have much better visual acuity uh, before they go out and drive. Oftentimes, if they're in a driver simulation, gamers will do much better at spotting a uh, ball rolling into the street, and they'll stop their car and not hit someone. So there are some benefits, but again, you're so used to being in control, that can create kind of a concern. And, of course, the whole issue of texting and email sometimes allows for communication without any accountability, right? We know how that is. So again, I need authority in my life, but I learn to trust it. And here is perhaps one of the most significant, the issue of information. Information is all I need, not teachers'. Because uh, certainly, again, all of us want information. They don't need, for teachers, they don't need to go very deep. And we saw this years ago. I certainly learned my multiplication tables, but for those just behind me, like my younger brother, you started hearing, if you were teachers at that time, and teaching math, teaching like the multiplication tables, the students would say, why do I need to know my multiplication tables? I have what? A calculator. Now they say, why do I need to learn history? I can just Google it. And so that's kind of created a whole new set of ideas as well. Teens are obviously really good and intuitive with technology. They figure out how to work it, uh, and they long to be self-sufficient. But again, it's interesting, they oftentimes, because of that, are turned off by outdated material or slow-paced teaching. And they know information is easy to find. Matter of fact, ask them, what is your best friend's phone number? <laughs> Right? <laughs> uh, because they don't need to know it, right? And, you know, uh, what, uh, some key fact, they'll pull it out again, uh, because indeed that's the case. And, of course, uh, again, they enjoy infotainment and those kinds of things. They're also, interestingly enough, um, very comfortable with perplexity. David Kinneman Gabe Lyons have written about that. David Kinneman now actually is the president of the Barner Research Group. They relish mystery, uncertainty, ambiguity. They're not bothered by contradictions. And I have a whole talk that I've done before on the millennial generation because our latest church program is really geared to help um, educate those millennials and to really address some of those issues it's called Periscope. But here's the issue that we might once again come back to in terms of creativity and solitude. If there is a place in the scriptures where it says we should be still and know that I'm God, Psalm 46, teens are rarely quiet, and as a result, quiet and solitude are rare, and constant noise could be a barrier to any kind of communication. And there are some issues to that, not the least of which is it leads to uh, one of the programs that I've developed and we, I've sat on a board where we're actually now speaking as much on bullying and texting and sexting as we were on abstinence and drugs in the public schools. And the bullying thing is kind of intriguing because it, no matter how poorly you were treated in high school, when you came home, that was a respite from all of that. And when I came into my bedroom, I could escape whatever I was dealing with, the basketball coach that was uh, the bane of my existence or some people that maybe had said something to me. But now, in a sense, a typical teenager's room, because they've got computers and they've got cell phones and they can see what people are saying about them on Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest or Snapchat. Yes, those really are words. Um, You know, that... um, they could just, you know, they never really get away from that. And so again, this whole issue of where do I go for information? You know, I can have much to learn from God. So again, we live in this world where there's a lot of connectivity and we need to obviously for our businesses and work be connected to the internet. But again, we certainly need to roll, have a better role model children want to be connected to their parents but sometimes the screens demand either their attention or the parents attention and I love this diagram this came out of New York Times I saw this and I said this is perfect because look here he's watching dad and what's dad on the phone listening to something on his computer what's he on well he's on his iPad there and so we need to be good role models for our children and grandchildren and set a good example about that Sometimes the disconnection uh, needs to happen first in the adults before it's going to happen in the kids. And connectivity obviously comes from conversations um, and to really recognize that there would be a way that you should think about protecting your meal from any of those digital devices. In Texas, and I imagine they have some of them up here, they have Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A has this little box where it says if you put the box there, you can put all your cell phones in while you're having your meal at Chick-fil-A. Now, you could do the same kind of thing at home and simply say, you know, let's not have those digital devices interrupt our meals. used to be that families wondered if they could have the TV on during dinner. Now, even if the TV's off, are just all sorts of other distractions, and it's something to think about. Finally, I put this in just for our pastors a few elders and any of you teaching small groups, Uh, one of the best books that might help some of you if you want to teach about this and think about how to address this, because I think we need probably more than just one Uh, 40-minute message here in a retreat if we're really going to address this. Uh, This uh, book by Tim Chalice, just one of many, and some of you are already familiar with him, uh, really is, I think, a very good resource for those of you that are teachers. So if you're a small group teacher, of course for our pastors here, uh, he points out, of course, that we rely on computers, cell phones, and the internet for communication, commerce, and entertainment. But he began to say that in this world of instant message, we're really feeling kind of disconnected. There's one sense in which Facebook connects you to all sorts of people. Um, we have a friend that just flew to Kenya, and I'm expecting to see a Facebook pop up and know that she got there safely. And So I'm in some ways more connected than I've ever been before with things like Facebook. But in other ways, we're more disconnected than we've ever been before. And he said he began to wonder if our growing reliance on technology is really good for our souls. And so uh, begins to really address some of those issues. And in the book, he deals with communication, uh, distraction, information, truth and authority, and even the issue of privacy and security. You know, this is a generation that probably is not as concerned about privacy And it used to be that some of the most popular radio programs we would do were on privacy issues. Back in the 1990s, that was a big deal. You know, what is the Clinton administration going to do? But now it's not so much because a lot of young people are saying, well... I put all sorts of embarrassing things about me on my Facebook page. I have embarrassing videos on YouTube. I'm uh, showing all sorts of crazy pictures on Pinterest or Instagram, wherever it might be. And so, you know, I don't even care about privacy and security. And those are some very important issues as well. So let me commend you the book by Tim Chalice. I also mentioned the book by Kathy Cook. And, of course, um, I have a chapter in there on Christian ethics in plain language. And you can also go to the website probe.org. And with that, I know we will have lots of questions. So let's see if we can try briefly to um, respond to some of those. Okay, so.